Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today we've got Lindsay McRae on the podcast. He is a BAFTA award-winning wildlife camera operator for the Natural History Unit. And what most of you will probably know him for is being part of the crew that saved the penguins at the end of Dynasties. And as part of that programme, he also spent 11 months away from his home and missed the birth of his firstborn child. So quite a lot to unpack there. He's going to be telling us a little bit about the industry, some of those experiences. So it's going to be a great chat. But first, the news. So one of the headlines for today is about the uncontrolled release of birds for shooting and that it's threatening adders. And they reckon that within the next 12 years, they could be extinct from most of Britain, which is shocking. You know, this iconic creature. Now, 47 million non-native pheasants and 10 million partridges will be released into the countryside by estates and shoots across Britain. This happens every year. And although many of them get run over and shot, many of them don't. They disperse and they cause ecological chaos. Pheasants kill reptiles, including adders on site, pecking at adults and swallowing young snakes whole. Although the adders are venomous, they stand little chance in any encounter as their bites cannot penetrate the bird's feathers, so they just get wiped out by these large velociraptor-looking fucking birds eating them. Now, the adder is a conservation priority species in the UK, but climate change, habitat mismanagement, inbreeding and disturbance have all contributed to its decline. However, Nigel Hand from ARG, the amphibian and reptile group, believes that the pheasant is having the greatest impact on them. Last year, the most comprehensive survey of adders was undertaken by ARG UK, which found the species could be extinct by 2032. It also found that more than 90% of surveyed sites had populations of 10 or fewer adult adders, which were vulnerable to local extinction. Adders don't move much, they stay in a very short uh, area. So if you lose, even if you lose a few, it has massive implications. The other thing to consider is that adders are not a species people are going to be in a rush to reintroduce. People just see them as venomous uh, snakes that go for their dogs and go for the jugular when you're walking out in the Peak District or something. So if adders did go extinct, conservationists would have a real hard time trying to get them reintroduced. So we've got to hold on to the ones that we have. Locally, in, in Nottinghamshire, we did have adders but we haven't had them for a long time now. So there's already many counties where they're already extinct. So I really do hope that we, we don't end up losing an iconic creature for the British countryside. Now, I normally do news at the beginning of these, which I've just done, but I'm curious if people would like me to do something else or whether people would want me to just skip the news. I realise that it's normally vastly out of date because I record these podcasts sometimes two or three months before they even come out. So if you've got a suggestion... Do you want me to just go straight into the interviews and just make them a little bit longer? Do you want me to do something else? I try and pick news stories that don't really age. I'm also thinking about changing uh, the end of what I do at the podcast as well. I used to do Nature Reserve of the Week, and this is going to be the first one where I do something different. So stay tuned for after the interview, and you can find out what we're going to do there. But on to today's guest, Lindsay McRae. He's worked on many nature television programs, and he's going to be talking a little bit about the hardships of the job some of his experiences, and we just have a good old natter. So here's the interview. Well, thanks for joining me, Lindsay. No, hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. No worries. Well, we're going to get through a few little bits and bobs. I've been dying to get you on. Uh, I think I got in touch a few months oh, ago it was, now. It was back in the spring, and now it's 
September. Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, my but, uh, fault. No, no, at least, you, at least you've done it. So I, I appreciate you. I think it was a case that we were having such a good spring. I think, yeah, look back at April, May, the weather was phenomenal, wasn't it? So, it was um, stunning, wasn't it? Yeah. I can't blame you for wanting to get out there and shoot rather <laughs> than uh, stay at Saint doors and, and waffle to me. But we're going to talk a little bit about your, your career and I think we should talk about the, the start of it, really. So your start into natural history television, uh, was, was, was it fair to say it was basically making cups of tea for people? And you've gone um, from that, sorry, yeah. you've, gone, you've gone from that to, to winning a BAFTA. So, uh, which I'll come on to later. I don't want to uh, make you too, too rosy cheek from that. But, but what was the moment where you thought, you know what, I've kind of, I've made it in this industry? Well, I... I say it started with cups of tea. That was when, when I was 18 and I left school. But okay. I've been in touch with people uh, at the BBC since I was about 12. Yeah. So I sort of had, I was quite lucky really because I had sort of a foot in the door by the time I finished my education. And, and yeah, I was very fortunate that Springwatch gave me a job. And um, to be honest, once I got that Springwatch job, just making cups of tea, I thought, I might be onto something here. That first foot in the door is always the hardest. And yeah, I was lucky because I went right through my teens knowing the right people and yeah, I could ask advice and yeah. So, so yeah. Would you, would you say that's quite important then? Um, I, I, I don't want to sound unfair, but like it's not what you know, but who you know. Yeah, I think so. You reckon? Um, I mean, yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today without, uh, my knowledge of wildlife. I had absolutely no camera training whatsoever. I wasn't even into photography as a kid. Um, only really sort of from 13, 14 did I get into playing with cameras. And even then it wasn't serious. I just used to love watching wildlife and, and learning about animal behavior and identification and stuff like that. So I'd have, I'd have been sussed out by now. Um, <laughs> I'd not known you know, what I was on about in that respect. I guess as well, you, you say it, knowing the right people, but you have to have that knowledge to back it up as well, don't you? So if people, yeah, are gonna, if people are gonna give you that opportunity, that's fair enough, but then you've got to kind of back that up with your, you know, like you say, your, of course, your, yeah, yeah. your wildlife knowledge and your, and your, you know, use of a camera and, and yeah. whatnot. So it's, uh, it's, there's a lot to it there. What a lot of people will, will, will probably know you for is the what you did on, on, on dynasties, Din dynasties, dynasties, however you want to say, it, I guess, but uh, 11 months away from home, which is, in, you know, an incredible amount of time. And, yeah. and of course, missing, missing the birth of your first child, which, which must've took a, a huge mental toll on you. So what, what got you through it? Cause you're away from your family, your, your wife, yeah. your, your first kid. So what, what kind of got you through those, those well, tough it, times? It was, to start with, it was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. I mean, it was, I think anybody working in the natural history TV industry, I think going to Antarctica and filming Emperor Penguins has got to be top of the list for a lot of people. It certainly was mine ever since I can remember. So to be offered that out of the however many hundred people that are within the industry now in my part of it, camera work, I couldn't say no to this because it would never come again. But yeah, 11 months away from home without being able to get back. Even if I wanted to midway through, you know, you're locked down basically in Antarctica. The weather's so bad, you can't get back. So yeah, I mean, we had internet, so you could keep in touch with, with people back home. But, um, but yeah, there were definitely some, some pretty horrible days where you're stuck inside for a couple of weeks on end with the storms that we had down there. Just wanted to get back. You know, the winter's long and, you know, 11 months goes quite quickly, but 
But when you, you think <laughs> Does it? Sleep, I, I had sleepless nights just before I left thinking, yeah. can I actually cope with this? Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, such a huge thing I've decided to do. And obviously I had a, a wife back home. Yes, we um, were expecting our first child. Um, so yeah, Walter came in April. I'd been there four months at that point. And I didn't get back until he was seven months old. So yeah, it was a big, um, big decision. But, but yeah, no regrets whatsoever. No, definitely. And because it was a fairly small team, wasn't it? Was it you and two other people? Is that right? Just, just three of us. But then we were with um, nine scientists, if you like, on the okay. Antarctic base. So uh, yeah, but still just 12 of us for, um, well, from the, the, eight, the lockdown bit is eight months long. So uh, yeah, long time. So, because with the practicalities of that then, because I'm just curious, so does that mean you have to have eight months worth of food there or does that yeah, get dropped absolutely. in? So no, what... everything, the, the, you, the weather's so unpredictable, planes can't fly, the sea freezes so far north, ships can't get in. Um, oh, yeah. I think our nearest people, our nearest base was about 800 kilometres away, but, you wow. know, over a crevasse field, we couldn't get to them. Yeah, you simply, you have to be self-sufficient for for eight months so what what kind of stuff were you eating i know this is really re- irrelevant for yeah, this yeah, podcast, no, but i'm just curious like what what you know day to day well we had obviously the last plane left in at uh, the end of february and we had maybe a month of month worth of fresh stuff that okay. they dropped uh, but after that was gone yeah frozen and tin stuff um oh, wow. until november so it's like baked beans and stuff like that sort of thing yeah i mean we could look, <laughs> part, part of our team to look after us all we did have a chef uh, okay he's there at the station all year anyway so yeah we had somebody cooking for us but but still you know food can get quite um you know you're eating the same stuff day in day out and yeah i was just craving fresh stuff by the time i left i bet i'd be i'd be straight in the chippy when i got back or something <laughs> you know it's amazing the things you'd, yeah. you'd miss like that so the, the the experience must have been just yeah phenomenal it's, it's another world isn't it just i mean you're so you're originally from uh the northeast aren't you is it north northwest uh, northwest, northwest the latest northwest yeah. yeah so you're from there originally so it's just a complete alien world going somewhere yeah, you not mean, you'd not been there before had you no no, no i'm yeah. not even into the arctic um no. i think the coldest temperatures i'd ever experienced prior to to antarctica was about minus 14 filming in scotland but just one night and you know that that's minus 14 is nothing really uh, i mean it yeah. sounds a lot but it, it's not and you know you can be outside without gloves for half an hour you know you keep yourself warm but um but yeah in the middle of winter we were experiencing up to minus 50 minus 60 with a bit of wind so Jesus. it's um it is another world but you know it's arguably the most beautiful place on the planet you know it's just untouched it's you know, apart from our, our team, there was nobody yet within 800 kilometers. Um, Proper you know, wilderness. Yeah, and it was, yeah, another world, but uh, absolute dream come true. I bet. And what most people will remember you for uh, from that, from, from the crew of the dynasty. So anyone who watched that episode and obviously at the end uh, will remember that you, you helped the penguins and that went somewhat of a, a viral sensation, really, didn't it? To help them get out of a hole that they were stuck in. And often in wildlife filmmaking, it's a case of, of being an observer. But, but what made you and the, and the rest of the crew want to kind of take action? What made you think, you know what, we need to, we need to help these penguins? <clears throat> well, this was, um, this was probably the biggest storm we'd seen. Certainly the longest. It was probably about two and a half weeks, this storm. We'd not been able to get down to the colony for two and a half weeks. Um, not even open the front door. The weather was that bad. And we'd been with the birds, what, almost, uh, well, September 
October. Yeah, almost 10 months by this point. So, you know, they were, I'd say they were mates, but we cared for <laughs> them and, you know, there was a connection there. Yeah. The difference with, with this situation, yes, usually you'd not do anything. You'd sit back and as hard as it is, you'd watch what happened. But emperor penguins are the only creature other than Weddell seals, uh, the only creature to stay through an Antarctic winter. Everything else flees because it's the conditions are just so brutal and it's one of the reasons why emperors breed through the winter you know it's one of their strategies they'll put up with the cold um, because there's no predators and so with these birds being pushed into this massive gully they hadn't been chased into there if the birds unfortunately died down there they weren't going to get eaten by anything else because there's nothing there to eat them so we thought you know what we're not disrupting the balance here we'll do what we can and all that was was digging a shallow slope into the side of this ramp um, and give them a, give them a way out. It was up to them, really, if they wanted to use it or not. But fortunately, they did. Can you? Because uh, I know they all look more or less look the same. But could could you tell them apart? Were there like any characters in there, or they know no. it, it's pretty much you know? Yeah, we had a colony of eleven thousand. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I mean, they all, all bar one were identical. You can't even t- you can tell males and females at different times of the year, but purely because of the size of them. Okay. So, for example, um, at the end of winter when the male's been incubating the egg for over 100 days he's not eaten so he's really thin and then the females return and they're huge you know they're they're stunning they're in amazing condition because they'd spent 100 days feeding at sea so um so you can tell but other than that no they're all they're all identical however we did have this one individual which was completely black it was some um melanism or some form of um you know its plumage had changed color and yeah 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 um, it had white toenails, a little bit of gold on its, um, where it should have its yellow patches on its neck, but the rest of it was black. Right, we, saw, okay. we saw him or her before winter, that bird went to sea for winter and fed with the females. And then we saw it again in the spring, it must've come back. So yeah. So you need to, to, to see the same bird in 11,000 is still pretty. Yeah, yeah definitely. Pretty it's lovely. like kind of where's Wally, but with penguins Yeah, to a, to a degree, but yeah. I, I don't think anyone, uh, begrudges you for helping the penguins to be fair i think it was a fairly positive uh, response to that wasn't it yeah in the end um yeah. yeah you're always running this risk but it's funny that the day it happened it was just another day for us you know you don't yeah I mean, yeah yeah, you yeah. think about it but you don't think twice afterwards you know we we thought we did the right thing and end of you know we moved on yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't think that's a. It's a bad thing at all. And and as a result, it, it was. It was dynasties that you got the BAFTA for. That's right, isn't it? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So what? What was that like? That was. That must be unreal. It's like a, yeah, you know, a crazy, crazy very thing strange. to get. Yeah, very strange. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, it's nice to get, but it. Um, yeah, it's just nice that we made a made a film that so many people appreciated, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, you're not making that film to win awards necessarily, are you doing it to get yeah. a message out and to kind of show the public things that they would have not, not necessarily seen? And also, I guess that's... I'm the lucky one. All I'm doing is sat there by this big lump of metal swinging it around. You know, there's, <laughs> there's an amazing editor who we had who put the material together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Production staff that sent us down. You know, it's, it's such an enormous team effort and I'm literally the not the last man on the line, but you know, the one that just happens to point the camera. So I guess that's the difference, uh, say between ph- photography and filmmaking where filmmaking is a, t- is a wholly team effort, isn't it? It's, yeah, you know, absolutely. obviously the camera operator has got to have skills, but then 
you need a, a good editor and a good producer and a good research. You know, the whole thing comes together, which is, you know, why the credits are so long on these big blue chip yeah, series because it's a, it's a huge, huge team effort for those. Yeah. And we, we share a bit of a, a passion as well, which is uh, Salmonids, which yeah. people may not recognize, uh, recognize if you think it's all penguins, but it's not. And in your local Lake District, you've done some fantastic work with sea trout and, and salmon. So what, what draws you to, to, to the Salmonids, to those guys? What kind of well, interest you in them? I've fished all my life. Um, my granddad was a big fisherman. My uncle's a big fisherman. Um, I, I've just, I think maybe it's maybe one of the reasons I got into wildlife was through fishing. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not keen on fishing these, these stocked waters. I love sort of chasing wild fish and, um, and, and not, not to kill necessarily just to, you know, catch and, and put back and, um, yeah, I just think salmon and sea trout have the most amazing life cycle. Yeah. And for such a, I mean, oh, salmon can grow big, so can sea trout, but in a, in a river that's powering down in flood, how these fish manage to get back up to spawn, having spent, you know, up to a few years down in the ocean. Um, and that transition from salt water to fresh water, I just, I just find the whole life cycle um, fascinating. And yeah, we've got some, we've got some beautifully clear, um, clean rivers up in the lakes, almost too clean because the majority of the year they don't hold anything um, other than a few minnows. All right. Okay. There's no core species in um, certainly these, these spate rivers around where I live. Uh, yeah. There's the, the Eden that runs through Carlisle, which is a you know grayling in and uh, its own wild brown trout. But where I am in the South Lakes, uh, yeah, we tend to just get salmon and sea trout at the sort of midsummer through to early winter, and and that's it. Yeah. Um, it's it's quiet the rest of the time of the year. They, I mean, some of the stuff I've seen you do, it's amazing how uh, how close you can get because they are. Certainly, I found salmon are can be ridiculously spooky, you know, and at certain times, you know, you dip your toe in, but you've got, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, it's difficult medium because obviously we're talking on, on a podcast, but you can't see anything. But if you get a chance do check out Lindsay's, uh, I think it's on your Instagram and things like that. Yeah. You can see some of the, the salmon and sea trout stuff that he's got. It's absolutely phenomenal. And, and the colors on them, they are, you know, those autumnal, oh, it's like a tartan jacket uh, with, yeah. with the salmon. They're yeah, absolutely, they are. Um, um, it's, it's funny you say that about salmon. Cause I've, I find out with sea trout, but not salmon. And I've, oh, really? I've got my own, I've got my own theory. Uh, well, I mean, I do a lot of sea trout fishing at night. Uh, um, anyway, the, the best time to catch sea trout is at night. Yeah. Um, and I'll, it's, it's funny. If you walk the riverbank during the day with polarizers on whatever, looking for fish, because some, some of these pools are empty. There's no point fishing them. If you see a fish dart off before sort of it's seen you before you've seen it, that's almost certainly a sea trout in, in my mind. And it's the same underwater. A, a sea trout can spot you from a mile off where I, I feel salmon will sit, sit tight for a lot longer. Oh, but okay. I only, I only take pictures of them in, in super low water in summer conditions uh, because the water's the cleanest, it's the shallowest. And I just feel that they are just in this massive energy-saving mode. They know they can't or they shouldn't expend any energy that they don't have to um and so long as you're slow you can get um relatively close to them um, yeah no that that makes sense i'd agree with you on that i'd never i thought i mean i don't th there are the odd salmon in the rivers where i am but i mean i'm salmon not to give the nearest i say salmon river very loosely would be the trend yeah. but 
there, there wouldn't be anywhere where you could get in and, and, and get close to them. But no, I mean, uh, I'm talking um, oof, 30 centimeters of water. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking Trent massive, you know, I'm right at the top end of the system. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's slightly different in that respect to like a, you know, a classic Scottish river. Yes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, each river's to its own, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, um, I mean, you, you've been, been to a hell of a lot of rivers as well, but I, I find each one's got its own characteristics and even the same species, you go to one river and they can act completely different, even if they're only a few miles apart, can act yeah. completely different to another one. So it's, you think you know an animal, I mean, not necessarily just fish, you think you know an animal and then you go yeah. somewhere else and it just surprises you. There were... Yeah, you've recently been on the D, haven't you, up in Scotland or was that last year? No, it was. It was a few weeks ago because I remember you told me about the D uh, uh-huh. yeah. a while oh, ago. I filmed, I filmed at a similar spot, I think, to where you were. So, yeah, I just chucked that location in. I don't know if you visited it or not. but I didn't, in, not for spawning. I, I, I was at um, Glen Tanar or Glen Tanner. Oh, yes, Glen Tanner. Well, yeah. I was there a few weeks ago. Uh, oh, were you? Else, but, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I was, I was at that spot trying to film par in woody debris. We were trying to, it was for a film showcasing how important woods are for fish because it's not a connect that most people make but when you know a tree falls into a river that's a fantastic habitat for fry and and river inverts and most british rivers are too neat and tidy we tend to take things like that out and there's nowhere for them to hide but i know mar lodge i think is is that the way you said or somewhere like that is that's Um, going to be pretty good isn't it for spawning yeah mar lodge is good in the spring i think they gather in the in the okay okay but it's funny it's funny you say that about the debris because I did a tour for our local river trust a few years ago and okay. they, they've got this, um, this program where they're, you know, chopping down trees basically and just letting them lie. Um, okay, yeah. the majority of pictures that I was showing were salmon and sea trout hiding under fallen trees. Yeah. Uh, and people just don't, don't realize how important, you know, a, a log in the, in the river is. Yeah. It looks, it looks, it might look a little bit messy, but it's, that's the point that it's just somewhere for them to hide away from predators and get out of the main current mm. if there's a flood. So yeah, yeah we yeah. need, we need more. It's why I always joke things like shopping trolleys that obviously I'm not encouraging people to chuck shopping trolleys in <laughs> rivers or traffic cones, but they, they can make a habitat for uh, maybe not a salmon, but something like a bullhead yeah. or a stone loach. That's a great habitat for yeah. them to, to hide in. It'd be better if it was a tree. Or, or a sunken log, but it's amazing. I seeing, um, seeing eels in the middle of, uh, I think it was Sheffield, in, uh, in tyres that had been dumped. Oh, really? Uh, this little stream that ran past a uh, supermarket car park, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, uh, yeah, you hit it here first. Chuck, chuck tyres and, uh, <laughs> and trolleys to help, help eels, which are critically endangered. So, yeah, let's, let's all do our bit <laughs> for them. I'll, I'll end on this, on this last question, which I've, I've been curious to ask a few camera ops this, but... Uh, you you do a hell of a lot of British wildlife. You also have gone abroad, so you've got a nice broad kind of spectrum on it all. But would you say that British wildlife is harder to film than abroad, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, I yeah, I think British wildlife some of the toughest in the world. Uh, if okay. I'm being honest, um, the majority of British stuff I do is hide work, whereas I'm very rarely in a hide when I'm overseas. Yeah, um, I mean things like otters roe deer uh you know not <laughs> impossible yeah you they're know, a nightmare certain, aren't they where i am up, up north you know their, you know their sense of smell is fantastic their hearing um oh no i definitely think that you know british wildlife is massively underrated plus it's it's 
it's covered so well nowadays with yeah. you've got the watches, the one show, Country File. You got all these you're going after, you know, quite a small pot of wildlife, if you like. So trying to find new stuff uh, or having the time to do old stuff well. Yeah. It's uh, is, is tricky. But but yeah, no, I'm a I'm a massive fan of, of British wildlife. Um, yeah, mainly because I get out and see it whenever I want. You know, I don't have to hop on a plane. No, yeah, it's a bit easier, isn't it? But it, it, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I've asked a few people this and, and nearly everyone says the same. They all say that the British stuff is really? so much harder. And it's, you, I don't know, you'd almost think the opposite. You think, oh, it must be that easy to go see what. But yeah, you, you think of the amount of stories that, um, that take time to do and just are, are trickier than, than what you can do, do abroad, definitely. So yeah. I, I think I'd agree with that. I would say that that British wildlife, not not that I've done a lot abroad. I've done a little bit abroad, but no, not um, not a huge amount. But the British wildlife stuff is is pretty tricky. Particularly, I mean, I'd say fish are pretty um, pretty hard, yeah. but all of it. But you say roe deer and and everything. Yeah, I'm very is. jealous of your fish stuff because I've only ever watched brown trout and sea trout and salmon. I guess in the I've late, gone, like I've you say, searching that... in the big waters in reed beds for pike, and I've oh, been okay. so, uh, I wouldn't say frightened, but. Um, <laughs> You know, you're going through these reeds, expecting to come face to face with this monster um, looking back at you. Yeah. Uh, I've never, I've never, I mean, you've, there's plenty of perch that, you, you know, you're swimming through shoals of perch. But, um, but I've, I've not seen a part. I mean, they're clearly there because I've caught them. But, yeah. Uh, but other than, uh, yeah, I mean, the lakes is a tricky sport, especially for coarse species. I was going to say it's not known for coarse fish, is it? They are there, but it's, they're not, um, not in huge numbers. I've done a little bit at Keswick on uh, Derwent Water. Yeah, I, w- I went I mean, to go. All spots, but um... yeah, they are stunning. It was um, I forget the glacial fish you get there. Uh, Arctic char, uh, Shelly, Shelly. You know, Shelley, they, uh-huh. yeah. I went to try and get them, and I did. Oh, Vendace, Vendace is the well, the yeah. really rare one. But it was just full of rough, like a little perch. Oh, really? Absolutely stuffed with the things. Yeah, loads right. of them. But um, no, yeah. Any chance I get to go up to the Lake Districts, it's good. But yeah, I know what you mean about pike. They're it's an irrational fear because it's not going to do anything, but still no, not at all. they just, they've got that look, you just know, coming face to face with one. Yeah. And fish, they always look a lot bigger underwater they do. than they are. Yeah. I've got, I've been face to face with, with what I think are really decent sea trout and salmon. And if, if they're really, you know, willing to take me and, and I can get, you know, within inches, I'll often sort of kneel and just reposition it. If I put my head above the surface and look back down at them, knowing where they are now next time, yeah. you know, you lift your head up and they're, they're tiny, but you put your head under and all of a yeah. sudden there's a 10 pounder line in front of you. I was, um, I was out this morning snorkeling, actually trying to film gudgeon. And I was like, just, just under there on my snorkel. And I thought these are British record gudgeon, but like you say, it's the illusion. Like you yeah, think, yeah. Oh, actually they're not that big, but looking at it, I thought, Jesus Christ, these are fucking huge gudgeon. Yeah. They're not, they're not big at all. They're just little, little tiny, uh, tiny things. Yeah. Well, look, it's absolutely fascinating uh, kind of hearing your insight into it all and always any excuse to waffle about fish is, uh, is always good. I, anyone listening, I would highly recommend to check out uh, Lindsay's book, My Penguin Year. It is available in all good bookshops. And uh, yeah, it's well worth checking out. So look, thanks for, thanks for joining me, buddy. No, thank you very much. That was Lindsay McRae. The dedication to his craft is absolutely incredible. And I think that not everyone would be able to do the work that he does, but it is superb what he produces. I did briefly mention his Instagram in there. It's badgerboy05, and I'll put a link to it in the description to this as well, but do go check it out because he's got some 
amazing stuff on there. On to the next item. So I'd normally do Nature Reserve of the Week, but I've decided to switch it up a little bit and I'm going to be doing top fives. And we're going to see how that goes. If people like that, I'll carry on. If they don't like it, tough, I'll still carry on, but we'll, we'll work something out between us. So I'm going to be going through top five things you should have in your camera bag. It's going to sound obvious, but having a spare battery and a spare memory card in your camera bag is going to save you so much hassle down the line. They take up bugger all room, just a little SD card or whatever your, your camera takes and a spare battery because if you're in the arse end of nowhere and you can't get back to your car where you might have more stuff or wherever you're staying, then it just means that you're not going to miss that shot. So I would always, always recommend having at least one spare battery and one spare card, particularly if you're shooting video, that eats up the battery. And if you're anything like me, I'm a spray and pray photographer. Hope for the best and maybe one of the photos is in focus. So you're going to go through quite a bit of space. So definitely have some extras of those in there. A lens cloth is really, really handy as well. Again, I feel like these are obvious, but they're not always to everyone. Uh, it's the sort of thing that you use to wipe your glasses with. And again, if you've just got some shit on your lens or just some stuff that needs wiping off, you can use your t-shirt or whatever, but that might smudge it up. So a little lens cloth, again, takes up bugger all room and is invaluable if you've got something over the lens. A little bit more specialist now with a rain cover. So this can be a dedicated one, you can buy them. I actually tend to use a shower cap. Whenever I go to a hotel, I'll just fill my bag with anything that's not nailed down. You know, the free shampoo, the soap, the, the shower cap, bed and linen, whatever I can get my hands on really. But that's really, really handy for a big long lens. You can put the, the shower cap over that and that'll keep the rain out. And I also normally keep a little carrier bag. And if it is really bad and I need something quickly, I can just chuck the carrier bag over my camera, poke a hole for it, and that works as a kind of makeshift rain cover. So that can be quite a handy thing to, to have in there. I so say you can buy dedicated ones, but it depends, depends how much you want to spend on it. Uh, a bottle of water at number four. Again, I, I feel like this is really obvious, but people, you know, the amount of times I'll do workshops with people or, or I'll go out, and I, even myself, I'll forget a bottle of water. I can go without food pretty well, but particularly in the summer, if you're thirsty, and you're nowhere near anywhere to get a drink, it can be pretty horrendous. So I always make sure that I've got a little bottle of water on me at least, just if I need a little swig. Uh, maybe in the winter it might be a flask of tea, but something to drink, it makes all the difference because you don't want to be out there and be uncomfortable. One of, one of the best bits of advice I ever got uh, about photography was that make sure that you're comfortable and you're more likely to stay out there shooting. And if you're out there shooting longer, you're more likely to get a better photo. I, I tend to be like, if I get a little bit cold or thirsty, then it saps your enthusiasm. So just kind of nip those all in the bud. Now, the final thing that I would recommend is a gorilla pod slash some kind of mini tripod, because there might be a situation where you want to get really low down or you just want a steady shot. For example, I might be planning to do stills one day, so I don't take the tripod, but then an opportunity to get some really nice video might arise. So by having some kind of of gorilla pod or tiny tripod it means I can at least get some kind of video or if it's a really dull day I can do some slow shutter work so just a mini tripod or even um, little plate things you can get that will go low down on the ground they can be really really handy so think about having those in your camera bag next time you're out that brings me to the end of today's podcast now next week I've got Fergal Sharkey 
who you might know as the lead singer of the punk band The Undertones. You know, Teenage Kicks, Teenage Kicks. I'm not going to start singing that. But he's gone from the lead singer of a punk band to a river champion for the UK. He is fighting the good fight to tackle some of these companies that are failing Britain's rivers with the amount of sewage uh, and just abstraction that's going on. And he goes into detail about how he's kind of doing all that. Uh, some of the facts and figures are quite shocking, really. So we have a good chat about his love of, of British rivers, uh, how fishing kind of got him into all of that, and a little bit more. So I can't wait to talk to him next week. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. We're out every Tuesday. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next week, hopefully. Cheers. <laughs>